Welcome everybody to Learn With Lol. Today we're continuing our Millennial Monday series on Tuesday, or Millennial Monday on Tuesday series. There's probably a better way of saying that. We are joined with Brian Bickett, who is a fee-only financial planner uh, focusing on retirement planning. He's going to educate us on financial planning and all the stuff around that, you know, make sure that we avoid the pitfalls and everything. And so I want to thank everyone just in advance for writing in and get, letting me know what you want to learn today. But uh, So we're going to get into everything. But Brian, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Will. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yes. So the big one, and this was kind of surprising to me, but I think it goes to this point. When you look at like the top six or seven things that millennials are facing today, financial literacy is a big one. Like people don't uh, know a lot, which is fine. Like that's what we're here to learn. Uh, but the number one question uh, ranked by semantic analysis was, can you just go over some financial basics for, for planning for your future and, and kind, of, kind of like weathering the storm? So like a lot of people writing in were just at, like at zero. So what do you think about when it comes to financial basics um, and setting people up uh, conceptually with a framework to just go through life without, uh, you know, too much stress, I guess. Well, we can't, we can't avoid too much stress in life. Yeah. That's, that's going to happen. And that's something we need to plan for. Um, and, and so we, uh, one of the basic building blocks when we're, when we're looking at uh, financial planning is we definitely want to build the framework so that we're, we're comfortable uh, taking on that stress when it does come. And so we always start with, uh, having margin or or uh, having margin in your monthly spending, uh, make sure that you're not spending every dollar or more that's coming in, and that you've got some margin there at the end of the of the month. And uh, the the next step is to take that and start building an emergency fund. We need we need a cushion for when life's when life happens. Uh, we need someplace uh, to be able to absorb that, and, and an emergency fund is truly the first place to do that. Um, and uh, the general rule of thumb is three to six months uh, of uh, expenses. I, uh, we start with what you can start with and, and focus on that, um, getting at least a month in there to start with. And then uh, moving on to, to tackling debt. And uh, um, th those are really the first three steps. And if, if we can get through those, there's uh, there's a multitude of more steps to walk through. But that's really the, the building that is acknowledging that there are going to be stresses in life uh both personal and financial and that, uh having the emergency fund and margin in your monthly income helps provide a buffer for when those waves do hit sweet so uh working middle to backwards so the is there a millennialized version of three, so i think a lot of people have heard the three six months rule but mm -hmm. uh but millennials i think you're millennial as well but the um there's been like COVID, there's been 9-11, there's been like a lot of upheaval when it comes to like planning and those things so far have not gone away in six months. Is this still a general good rule of thumb for millennials to just have six months or is it is it good to have like maybe nine months? I know like startups, for instance, a lot of my friends are startups. I advise a lot of them. The A lot of them um, at like six or nine months ago were told to like get to a central, essentially revenue zero. So instead of like... Uh, deficit spending to grow to get to the point where they're, they're, they're profit neutral or like a round profitability because they expected a recession and terrible stuff to happen. They expected that to happen within 18 months, to like, you know, get things worked out. So um, is three six months like really an optimal one for millennials or is there a more optimal one for millennials? The, the three to six months rule of thumb is a, is, is a rule of thumb. Uh, but when we, when we dissect that further, we want, um, if you're a, if you're a W-2 employee and have a fairly stable position um, and, and have had that uh, position for a while, then, uh, you know, three months uh, might be the goal to start with. Uh, if we're, uh, um, if I'm 
an entrepreneur and uh, and things are very volatile, um, then I, I'm definitely going to want to be further out on that six, nine months, maybe even a year, depending on the situation. Anytime we're making financial decisions, we're making compromises. We have to make a compromise. So if I, if I say that you can't go start or that you shouldn't, I can't say you can't do anything, but if you, you shouldn't go uh, pursue your dream until you have a year of savings saved up, well, a lot of folks will never get there and will never, will never step out. And it, so at some point, uh, we definitely have to make some decisions and a compromise of, uh, if, if we're going to step out on our own and what level am I comfortable with, uh, saving up to? And so I, yeah, I could say ideally you want a year's worth of savings sitting in an emergency fund, but, uh, truthfully, a lot of people would never reach that and never pursue what they feel like they're called to do. And that's, uh, to me is more important than um, checking a financial security box. Yeah. And then when you have, when you have that security uh, emergency fund, uh, where do you store it? Cause so like a savings account is like 0.000001%. And so you're basically losing money to inflation. So where do we store it where we're not just like giving the bank leverage to like loan out money and they benefit, but we just are like housing it somewhere safely. Uh, that's that's a really good question. The, the truth is, anytime we put it in a savings account, regardless of the savings account, we're always losing ground to inflation. Um, mm. Savings accounts are always going to pay less than what we're seeing with inflation or what true inflation is. Um, and so the, the 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 goal of that uh, emergency fund, I with clients, I refer to that as my sleep at night fund. But that that money is not there to grow. It's not there to um, to do anything but be that security blanket that allows me to sleep at night, knowing that I can go grab it if I need to. Something unforeseen happens, I can go get it. Um, as far as where to put it, um, there's uh, numerous, um, you know, depending on your local branches, um, some will have some offers. But uh, if we look at like Ally or Capital One online, um, they've got uh, money market savings accounts that are paying uh, upwards of four and a half to five percent right now, and they'll and they'll move uh, with interest rates as well. And so there's those are no fee savings accounts, uh, money market accounts, and um, that's where that's where I have my personal savings sitting right now. And uh, as rates have gone up over this last year, they've they've increased their rates as well. And eventually, at some point, rates will come. I expect rates to come down again. And when that happens, that they'll I expect them to come down at the same time or in lockstep with that yeah it sounds uh better than the point infinity one percent but <laughs> is it is it so basically it's just like a it's but it's like a savings account like i can pull from it when i want it's not like um roth iras or something where you have like a penalty for pulling out or anything like that so uh yeah uh, yeah the money market accounts are there's no penalty um there is a limit that uh I think there's a federal limit that you can only make six distributions a month out of it and so mm. um, it's an emergency fund so you you shouldn't be taking if you're taking a, a money from that if you're pulling funds from it then you probably want to do that in in chunks as you perceive that you're going to need it over the course of the month but um other than that there's no there's no restrictions to it there's no there's no uh both of those places ally and capital one neither one of them charge any fees there's no transaction fees um, you link it to your local or wherever your checking account is. If it's not at one of those two places, and and transfer it as you need it. Great. Um, uh, and then, you, oh, go ahead. Go sorry, ahead. I was going to say you, you mentioned Roth IRAs, and um, and I don't know if you want to talk about IRAs later on, but with a, with a Roth IRA, at one of the benefits of that 
is that you at any time can pull your contributions out tax and penalty free. Um, oh. it's not, it's not something that we advocate, you know, that that's, you should dip into a retirement savings account when you, whenever that, that, that money is very accessible. However, um, one of the benefits is that you can, uh, your contributions, you can take back out at any time tax and penalty free. All right. Well, thank you for educating me on that. I, I didn't know <laughs> this is fun, you know, because this is such a fun topic for me because you don't know what you don't know. And I just literally threw something out there and you like educated me in two seconds. So this is fun. Uh, the, uh, so when it comes to debt and margin, um, I, the nice thing about, let's say, college loans, which is the biggest thing that people have, is that there's a lot of programs out there that will can tie it as a percentage of your income. So if you have like a large one out there, I think that's a lot of people don't know this, that you can get it, you know, a smaller percentage, which is nice. Um, but what do you what do you think about uh, uh, college loans as it relates to debt? Uh, in these first three steps. And I think the other thing is that I, I've read a lot about is people, I, I don't want to be like mean to say like mismanaged, but like their credit mm -hmm. cards. Uh, I know a lot, like a lot of people talked about credit card debt. And I think um, I'm going to make that a part two question. I'm gonna, let's go with part one because like, okay. I have some like nuanced aspects of it because apparently that was like another big thing that people wrote in on. So when it comes to uh, general debt, um, that could be um, student loans, mortgage, that type of stuff. Uh, I know there's like uh, debt to income ratio. I don't know. How do you think about financial planning as it relates to debt and the credit cards? Let's keep that separate because apparently that's a, a big topic for people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think the general rule of thumb is that you want your your mortgage and debt payments to be less than 25% of what your income is, um, ideally. And I know a lot of folks are stretched beyond that. Um, and and if you're in that situation, then it's even more important to create some margin to start start freeing up some cash flow to attack those. Or um, uh, a lot of times, you know, it, it means making sacrifices of uh, um, uh, selling a, a newer car and buying an older one. And I know the folks don't want to hear that, but every, every decision we, we make financially is full of compromises. And so... Um, it really comes down to what the individual is comfortable with. I mean, I, I, I think that you should spend lavishly on things that are important to you and cut, um, cut, um, drastically things that aren't. And so for, for some folks, uh, you know, eating out is important to them. It's social. It's, it's, uh, it's an important part of their lives. And so they spend lavishly in that area, but then cut ruthlessly on, uh, in, in other areas that aren't so important to them. Uh, maybe they're they're driving a, a an older car when they could purchase a newer car, but instead are spending that money on uh, on eating out with friends or family, and uh, others are the exact opposite. And so for each individual, it's whatever what's important what's important to you is where you should be spending your money. And that's one of the one of the things that we pull out of when we look at spending uh, monthly spending is are you spending money on what's really important to you? Is is that the case and if not well then let's let's fix that because that's it's not my job it's not anybody else's job in the world to tell you what's important to you um but that's where you should be spending the money in the areas that aren't we should we should be cutting ruthlessly um one thing that i was reading about and um a couple of people said in writing in is that they get um like a paralysis by analysis in terms of just like having a budget so I think mm -hmm. it sounds like from what people were telling me, I've had a budget since I was like seven years old. So like, I love budgets. I like knowing where everything's going. Uh, but I, I'm like, I'm like, that's like fun. 
but um, is there is there like a simple formula or an app or anything like that that you recommend, preferably free, because maybe you know take away all like the things that are getting in the way? Because I think one of the if I was reading between the lines of some of the uh, comments that came in, is there's just this fear like, well, what if I do the wrong budget and then like things don't work out or whatever, or, you know, like or uh, I uh, you know fall the scams, which you know we'll talk about that later. So like, what are what are some good? It could be rule as a thumb, but I know like having a budget is definitely gonna be one of them. But is there uh, an online resource like download a budget spreadsheet? I know like Google Google Sheets has like you just click a template and there's a, a sell spreadsheet. But then uh, you look at that and there's like so many so much more than you need. So I, yep. if we can help people out there, you know, working through mental illness on this uh, mental health, sorry, on this topic, how do we uh, set up a budget to handle these types of things? Uh, most people, to to your point, most people try and track at a level that's unsustainable to. Uh, and they track things that are not that they're not going to take action on. So if we have 26 items, 26 different budget categories, and I'm tracking each one, but I'm not ever going to use the information out of one of those categories, then I then it it doesn't do me any good to to track at that detail. And if anything, there's so much tracking that I get frustrated and I stop doing it. And so then the whole thing blows up. Is 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 along lines of what you had just said. And so I I always recommend folks start with regardless of what budgeting tool you use um it doesn't whatever one is um you're most comfortable with some people still write ledgers still write everything down some folks are using excel spreadsheets um there's there are multitude of apps out there that uh have different you know um uh, map that well you can connect to your um checking and um and credit card accounts and it'll it'll import the transactions automatically credit cards have budgeting apps, so on and so forth. But regardless of the application, uh, just starting with five categories, just starting with a, a housing, automotive, um, food, uh, entertainment, and miscellaneous. And just just for the first couple of months, just throwing everything into each of those five categories. And after a couple of months, you'll see, um, you'll as you look at it, you'll see what falls in the miscellaneous and, and what falls in the other categories that, that doesn't there that are levels of detail that you want to track further and so um i i advocate for starting with a very few number uh, a lower number of budget categories and um and based on the individual you know if if eating out is a problem i shouldn't say is a problem but if i'm spending a lot of money eating out and that's not important to me well then that's all showing up in my food budget well then maybe i need to break the food budget into a uh, groceries and eating out so that I can keep the better tabs on, on my eating out, um, category and, and, and really try and track that at that level. Um, but for other folks, they don't need an eating out, uh, uh, a restaurants category because it all falls in food and their food category is, is they're comfortable with. And there's, you know, if I'm eating it at a restaurant and I'm not buying groceries and they view it that way. And so that's not a level of detail that they need to track, but that, Taking that approach allows each individual to develop their own budget in the way that's that's useful for them. Um, that answer your question? Yes. And okay. you mentioned you were specific on Mint being one that you recommend plugging into stuff that helps. And I like that you just kept like basically three to five categories that are really simple. And I think the if you if that still seems like a lot um, for anyone out there, just like round, you know, like it, it's like oh, I went out and ate and it was like twenty four dollars and ninety three cents. Maybe it's just twenty five bucks. Like just mm -hmm. put it in there in a round category and make it really simple on yourself. Um because like you, you deserve to have a budget and you know feel a lot better about your financials. Um so I was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad as it relates to debt. 
and the uh, I'm like I don't know. So like one of his thoughts is that basically like debt is the thing to use to get to a better place, like to use debt in like a very weaponized way. Um, so how do we use debt as a resource then? Or do you? What do you think of Rich Dad Poor Dad? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad are, is one of the um, his books uh, that one specifically and uh, he's got a couple other ones out there are ones that I read um, as part of my personal financial journey before I became a financial planner um, uh, it was hugely influential, influential to me to, to moving from being an employee to being self-employed um, as, as it relates to uh, using debt I think that it's uh, you have to weigh um, what happens. Um, how should I say that? You have to weigh weigh what would happen if you fail and how you're going to handle that going forward. Um, I, I know many entrepreneurs that ha that needed to take on debt in order to get things started, and things worked out very well for them. I also know others that um, that uh, tried to take on that took on debt and, and, uh, started following their passion and it didn't work out. And that, uh, you know, at some point led them to declaring bankruptcy and basically starting all the way over. But I also know that, uh, I also know folks who would never make the leap to entrepreneurship because they'll never feel comfortable enough that they have enough to make that leap. And they're not willing to take the, the risk of debt to, to help assist them in that. And so I, uh, I, I, I'm not anti-debt by any stretch. Um, if, if you're, if you're, I think if you're, if you think it through and you're intelligent about how you're using the debt and how much it is, um, and how the, what the terms are, um, that you, you definitely can use debt and most, most businesses use debt to get started. Um, so for millennials out there dealing with the different, you know, stuff out there, uh, should they be, if there's like, I guess like a, a spectrum from being very liberal and being having like a terrible DTI ratio and being very conservative and knowing that if something bad happened, they could still cover the debt, debt financing or whatever that's going on. It sounds like we probably, given like potentially people's list, risk, risk tolerance to like edge on the conservative side, are there good resources to learn more about how to use debt responsibly? to get people where they want to go? Because it sounds like it's a useful tool and resource, but there are downsides and there is a lot of stuff out there. Uh, I mean, I looked at TikTok today and typed in finance and I was like, man, these people, they sound confident, but I like, I like, I like these, com I like, like, uh, uh, some of these concepts, I like them less just from hearing them talk about it a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I, I don't, you know, the small business administration is a, is a place I'd point to folks towards, um, They'll, they they would help you make sure you've got a uh, a realistic business plan in place and uh, a plan for how how to handle the debt uh, going forward. Um, but I don't have any other resources other than uh, you know above and beyond debt management would be uh, having a mentor, having someone um, yeah. that's that's further down the road that you want to pursue and uh, having them help uh, take their advice and help guide you as to in your journey, knowing that your journey is not going to be exactly like theirs, um, but someone who's walked down that same path before uh, would be hugely, hugely beneficial. Do you, um, do you have any tips that you've used in your life to find good mentors? Like, I think uh, some people say, uh, you know, offer them like a cough, like to pay them, to bring them coffee or something is pretty good. But mm -hmm. like, do you have any like uh, 
little things like that to let them because fundamentally i think it's just letting them know like you're not gonna waste their time i think it's like hey i'm asking for your help you're a very busy person can i bring you coffee it's like just shows like the like the little bit level of like interest but what are some things that you do to like find not find them but like uh secure i guess with good mentors secure mentors uh in the in the past i've done just that i've uh, offered to buy them lunch um often offered to buy them breakfast uh bring coffee to the office uh something where i'm i'm helping them in some way and and grand, most of the mentors don't need someone to buy them lunch don't need someone to bring them coffee but you're you're sincere and uh, i think uh being diligent and ex at least accepting their advice even if you're not doing it down to the t uh, goes a long ways and um the the other is uh um even going as far as paying for an hour of their time um i've had um i should say i i know of folks who have gone to uh people they look up to and said i i know your your hourly rate's 175 dollars an hour is what you charge for your service um can i can i pay for an hour of your time and here's the type of questions i want to ask over that period and that opens the door that you are serious and sincere about that mentorship and even though it might not be a formal mentorship um ongoing but that uh i think you just have to show that you're not you're not wasting their time as much as anything we uh we all are very very limited on how much time we have i think the one thing i'd add is to that is um when whenever someone gives you advice just let them know how it turned out even if it's like a two-minute like email saying hey you know i really appreciate it you said suggested these types of things. This is how it worked out for me. It's kind of cool. Here's something that worked out differently. Because uh, I've had, I've like given people advice and stuff, and there's been a couple of people where, where it's been like a thumbs up response, and like, oh, I'm never helping you again. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> yep. It's like delete going on with day, <laughs> which uh, you know, I mean, the they went from like someone I would help to like not. So like a little bit of like uh, think what if you gave someone advice, like would you not want to know how it went out uh, versus like goes out in the world and never seen again um the, so for i was reading that for a, a lot of the average american basically can't afford a 500 dollars like random expense like a car you know need tires or whatever it is um and i think it's like really a broad question but when people are in that state it sounds like we talked to some of the things that you should do like find a budget you know start you know increasing your margin so you can put something away and so uh when people do, let's say, have $500, you know, maybe it's like $100 a month and like over the course of like following this basic stuff that we just mentioned, they can get to $500 a month or, or something like that to like weather these types of expenses. And they have their emergency fund. What do they do with the rest where it's still useful? Where uh, like where do they where should they think about uh, putting it that type of thing? So once they've reached that level, um, where, what should they do next, essentially? Uh, I, I think you have to do some soul searching and and mm. uh, and and understand where it is you want to go and for a lot of people uh, you, you mentioned before with budgeting they get uh, uh, paralysis by analysis that there's I, I don't know what i want to do next i don't know what to do with this uh going forward and so uh, my advice is always to take the take a step in a direction even if you're even if you're not um not sure which direction to go we'll take a step in almost any direction will get you further well, truthfully get you closer to to where you will end up or where you ultimately will want to end up because a lot of times we just we, we don't know what we don't know until um until we make that first step and then can say 
that's not the path. I, I see now that that's not the path I want to pursue. Um, so now I can eliminate that option. I have these other five things I'm considering. Well, let's take a step in that direction of uh, number one. And nope, that's not what I'm looking for either. Let's take a step in direction number two. And, and at least uh, every every one of those steps gets you closer to where you ultimately will want to be. But you you have to you have to take action, even if it's uh, even if it's 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Um, that 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 will tell you that that's not the re the right direction. And now you can move in the, in the, it, to help move you further. Yeah. Um, is, and so I, I, I mean, to me, it's uh, as much about um, what it is that's important to you and and what to do with those dollars. I, I think retirement uh, for the baby boomers and retirement, what retirement looks like for millennials is night and day different. Um, um, I don't, I don't, I think there'll be, you know, the, the baby boomers idea of retirement for many of them is, you know, I quit my job and I, and I, and it's a life of leisure after that. And I think with the millennials that there's, um, that there's not, uh, you'll always be doing something. And, and I think that's important working with baby boomers as they retire is that you have to have purpose in your life and, uh, you know, saving for retirement. I'm not trying to discourage people from saving from retirement. Uh, but you, you, we shouldn't pin all our hopes on, uh, 40 years from now or 30 years from now, then I'll be able to do the things I want to do. What what can we do today to bring those forward? Because who knows what tomorrow brings? Yeah. It's the, um, I know uh, Warren Buffett has like some type of, I forget the ratio of something that he, he recommends for like a stock index, index stocks or something. I forget the, like, the, the term for it off the top of my head. But when there is uh, like everything's taken care of, um, he said, to like put it in like an index fund and like kind of let it sit there and it'll take care of itself over the long term. Um, mm -hmm. Is that one of those paths you're looking at, you're talking about, like soul searching to decide what you want to do? Or is that more like, do you want to build a business? Do you want to be more a part of the community? Do you want to like travel more and has that a ratio? Is, or is that what you meant? Uh, the, the second part of what you said. Okay. Um, you know, if, if you're comfortable in your career and you're comfortable with what you're doing and, and you don't, you don't have any, um, any other goals for that money and, and you want to save it for something long-term. I mean, at any time we're talking about goals within the next three years, we absolutely don't want to invest it in the markets. That, that, that's definitely not the, we, there's not enough time. If the markets have a decline, if 2008 happens, we don't have time in three years for the markets to come back. And so um, really anything three to five years, we avoid the markets. And, but if we have, if we've identified a goal uh, that's important to me that, you know, in, in 10 years, I want to buy uh, a second house somewhere or I want to be able to go on an annual trip somewhere. There's something that, that I've decided um, that's important to me that I can use a money, I can use money as a tool for. Well, then um, in that case, if we're going to invest in the markets, I, I agree with, with uh, Warren Buffett entirely that uh, we use index funds and uh, not try and pick which stocks to buy, which ones, uh, which stocks to buy, when to buy them, when to sell. Um, the, the research shows that people get lucky from time to time, but overall, uh, we have a horrible, um, horrible record of timing those. And so uh, investors fare out much better over the long term if we can just buy into the entire market and, and let it ride. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the, it was, it was so nice that people wrote in, like helps me like make the episodes and your time much more valuable. But the one of the big things that people are writing in is saying that the first house is the big thing that they're 
a lot of people feel like they're they're priced out of it because their rent is somewhere between like a thousand and fourteen hundred, and so it's like how do you afford both at the same time? You know when you're trying to like get things uh, uh, around. But when it comes to um, you know saving up, I think FHA loans like only need like three percent or something, which is mm-hmm. less than like the normal type of loans. But how do you think about uh, for millennials or for people listening? In, they're trying to buy their first home. Um, how do we financially plan for that? Um, you, you, you've got to, of course, you got to make room in your budget for, for what that mortgage interest and, um, uh, insurance, or I should say mortgage insurance and property taxes are going to be. I mean, you've got to make room for that, but you've also need some margin. You need some savings because things are going to go wrong. Uh, even if you were to buy a new house, um, things are going to come up. Um, there's going to be a hailstorm. There's going to be, uh, a natural disaster that comes through uh, a storm event. The furnace is going to die. Something's going to happen um, that you're going to need some funds available. Even if insurance is going to cover it, um, you've got to be able to cover the deductible on the insurance. Um, it might be a little while before insurance pays you. You need to be able to cover that time in between. And so um, I don't know that I'm answering your question exactly how you want me to, but it, or how, what what you're asking, um, but. Uh, or how you asked it maybe, but it's, um, uh, I think you have to be more financially prepared for that than people think, uh, because that's, that when that happens, when those things happen, that's when you start having to dip into credit cards. That's when you start having to reach for things, uh, financially. And that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that's a rough road to go, to go down. Yeah. Is it enough? So let's say you have like the three or 4% down payment and you have on top of that, uh the three to one you know three to 12 month uh, emergency fund is that sufficient in terms of uh having enough money in and uh for emergencies like you're saying or should you have like if it's three percent try to get like what is there like a good rule of thumb like how would you think about or is the emergency fund built to that level would that be sufficient i think if your emergency funds built to that level that's sufficient um Mm. you know if you anytime you put less than 20 percent down on a house, you end up with private mortgage insurance, which costs a little bit more on top of, um, I mean, it's a, um, it's an additional uh, expense. Um, and if, and there's ways to avoid um, private mortgage insurance, you can get a, a second loan for that second 17%. Um, but uh, it, it um, really, it's, it, it comes, it re- I know you want a, a rule of thumb, but it really comes down to the individual and, and where they're at and what they're comfortable with the, the risks they're taking. Um, is it is it the time to buy the house now, or uh, do, or do I need to wait another year so that I'm I'm more secure financially, knowing that? And I absolutely um, absolutely believe we cannot financially prepare for every storm. There's 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 things that are going to happen to folks that we. Um, if we prepared for those, uh, it would, it would, well, we could never prepare for them. So, uh, credit card debt, the, there's many strategies on this. I think there was like a, a 60 minutes or something when I was in high school, it wasn't a part of high school at all. I just heard about it and it scared me a lot. Uh, <laughs> if you have credit card debt, well, first thing I guess is like, try not to have credit card debt paid off every month, but when you do have credit card debt and it's substantial, uh, what are some strategies that you found to be effective in terms of like getting it off? I know there's like one where it's like you do the highest interest rate quick, or there's like uh, the smallest amount if you have multiple credit cards or something. You do the smallest one first, so you feel good about the fact you're getting something worked off. Um, what are some strategies that you found to be effective um, if you're trying to just optimize for like t- destroying the debt? I guess. 
truthfully, there's so much behavior, there's so much mm. emotion, behavior in finance that, um, I mean, I can run the numbers and show you that mathematically you're better off attacking the highest interest, interest rates first, um, and paying the minimum on everything else. Um, however, uh, if you don't see progress and, and after six months, you're, you're staring at the same debts, you, you, the big one that's at the high interest rate, you've made a dent in, but it's still looming out there. Um, you're more likely just to give up and say, this isn't going to work. And so, uh, what I've seen work best with people, even though it's not the most efficient way to do it, it's the one that gives us the best chance of actually following through with it would be to tackle the smallest debt first. Um, and then you see progress and you're encouraged to continue on. So credit card debt, um, work it off, uh, it takes time. I think when, um, another thing that I heard, and I don't know, this is me, we're just like checking to see if this is still a thing, but uh, I'm told that when you get credit card offers, you should keep them. And then when you find yourself in credit card debt, you say, hey, this new credit card is offering me like three months off or like lower interest rate. Can you guys match that? Because I'm thinking like, you know, opening them up instead. And they usually mm -hmm. will like match you for that period of time. So then you have less interest or uh, like an interest-free period while you're handling stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know that you need to keep those offers or not. I mean, that's uh, that definitely gives you alternatives in the event that they, they won't. Um, if you need to move things from one to the other, that, that, that gives you an alternative. I see I can understand uh, that process, but it's it's always worth the phone call to call a credit card company up and, and ask them to reduce the rate. Um, the worst case is you spend 20 minutes on the phone and they and they say no, we won't. There's nothing we can do, and and you're where you're at. In the best case, they cut your interest rate, or well, they cut your interest rate, and um, and uh, I think a lot of companies will do that. Yeah, and it's a very valuable if it's like 20, 30 minutes, or even an hour. Uh, mm -hmm. Imagine. How much money you'll be saving and that's how much you just like saved yourself you know if you have like five thousand dollars and they they saved you 20 percent a month like you know you got that you know in an hour like you just uh you have like such a massive uh you know if you were to like you know charge for that there's such a huge amount of money uh, yes. especially if it's like over like three three months i was just like i'm trying to like do the math while also deciding probably <laughs> no one would be interested in that but me so uh um so you typically work with older gen uh generations the manual series you're trying to like, I guess you're seeing the results of people maybe not taking a more active look at their financials when it comes to planning for their future. Um, and there is that difference you mentioned where like millennials, where we want to be a little bit more part of the community where it sounds like other people just kind of want to be like, well, I did my part. And that's cool too. Like whatever makes you happy. Cause I mean, it's like, like all life is variable. Um, mm -hmm. The, as someone, so if we're looking at now and we're at zero, I know people always say like the best time to start is like earlier, but is there like, if you, if you only had like 20 bucks extra a month and you're like, you start this thing and you're like, Oh wow, I have like 20 bucks extra. Um, uh, is there a good way to like, do you just like put that in an emergency fund and you just keep adding to that? Or do you, um, do you do anything with it? Do you put open it up like an investment account, do the index funding or whatever? Like, is there like a minimal amount to really have coming in each month or to have before you start thinking about these types of things? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's really, well, there's really not for that first, when we're at zero, you know, the, the, the mm -hmm. adage about when the best time to plant a tree is, yeah. well, 20 years ago and the second best time is today. And so, um, we, we can't do anything about the past. We can't change anything about yesterday or before. Uh, but we can, we can definitely make changes from here forward. And so if, um, if you've got $20 extra a month, um, I mean, that's, you start filling up your emergency fund. Life is going to happen. Things are going to come up. 
and uh, a year and a half from now, you're going to have $120 in there. Um, or I'm not, I'm sorry. In six months, you'll have $120 in there. And then, um, invariably something is going to come up where you need that money. And it's, it's a good thing you saved it. Otherwise that would have went on a credit card to cover it. And so, um, money is simply a tool to be used to help you pursue what's important in your life. And so, um, I, I wouldn't, I would never, advise that somebody or I wouldn't suggest or advise that um, if you got an extra $20 a month that we go and buy uh, Tesla stock with it um, to start with, why why are we buying Tesla stock? I mean, what's the purpose of that? And, um, and, uh, and so I think that the, the money needs to, the money is simply a tool to move mm -hmm. you closer to what's important to you. Are you the, uh, are you like the, like the the Tesla shorters? I was just reading about this the other day, where they think uh, Tesla's overhyped, so they want to short it or something. Uh, yes, I'm I'm familiar with that. I am not a I'm not a market timer in any way, shape, mm. or form. Um, I don't do that personally. We don't do that with clients. It's not uh, we yeah. buy into the market and uh, get market returns at the least cost possible. And over time, uh, for uh, on average, um, investors do better using that approach. Yeah. Yeah, the uh oh okay so then the it could have been any stock it's like your 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 thing it wasn't te it could have been like yeah yeah uh, no, I was, joe yeah. schmoes yeah I, I didn't know if it was like you know sometimes no, no. people are like i hate tesla <laughs> so i just like i was just asking uh, no no no, no. Like I, nice it could have yeah we could have filled it in with anything ford chevy yeah, uh, yeah. gm uh whatever the disney yeah 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 the, uh, okay and then uh i know you um you do like a no fee structure for financial planning or something like that i uh I don't have the specific part of the note in terms of like how you structure getting paid to be uh, appreciated. So I did um, go through a bunch of forms. Like no one talked about this side of it because uh, it's really nice. No one had a financial planner when they they wrote in. So this is like uh, very good information. But they they talked about how like sometimes people would make a percentage off of how well you did, and that, or like sometimes uh, it was fee based or like there was like so many different structures. So when people are looking for a financial planner. How do they know they're fine? Like, how do they suss out people like yourself or like, no nonsense, I'm just trying to get you where you want to go versus like, uh, I don't know, I imagine them in like uh, $100 bill suits, like just like just like $100 bills everywhere. So I'm going to make you money or like back to quarters or something. Uh, I mean, that's kind of probably a dead giveaway if they're dressed that way, like where are they getting that money from. But how do we separate uh, good financial planners from bad financial planners? And then structurally, is there like a, a fee structure of some kind that kind of lets you know if they're good or bad? Uh, the, you're, you're spot on. There's a, there's, uh, there's two, uh, there's, there's very, very, there's, there's a lot of ways financial planners, financial advisors, uh, get paid, uh, those compensation structures, um, get really, can get really convoluted. Um, what I would recommend for, uh, millennials, for anybody just starting out, regardless of your age, to be honest, would be to look for someone, um, who is a, a fee only financial planner. And that is someone who um, does not, uh, there are financial advisors, financial planners who they are compensated based on commissions on the products they sell. If I sell a life insurance company, I get a percentage of, uh, I get a commission from that. If I sell a specific mutual fund, um, I get a commission of that, not me specifically, but that financial advisor does. And that's how they're compensated. And when you're compensated in that manner, you're more influenced that that can definitely influence what your recommendations are. 
And so uh, there is a category of fee of financial planners that are fee only and uh, who are legally required to do what's in your best interest at all times. They have a fiduciary standard. And I would I would point folks to the Garrett Planning Network or the XY Planning Network. Um, those are groups. Uh, the Garrett Planning Network is uh, hourly uh, financial planners, the only financial planners who charge just by the hour and and have that initial conversation with them and 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 go from there. Uh, the XY Planning Network um, are fee only financial planners. The majority of them are certified financial planners as well. Um, and, and offer, uh, they have different, uh, fee structures as well, but everyone has to offer some sort of, uh, fee for service structure. So, um, you know, you have the initial conversation with them and they quote you a fee. It'll be whatever the number is to, to put together a financial plan for you, or most of them offer hourly advice as well. And so that, that's where I would, I would start with someone who is not, who their advice is not influenced by the products that they're recommending. That makes sense. It's like, it sounds like they would be, and that was the big thing that you mentioned, the, um, like their incentive structure is to sell you something that makes them money versus, uh, helping you make money and like manage yeah. your stuff. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense. It's like, um, I always wonder, uh, when I see a problem, like how can we incentivize people to do the right thing versus like saying, don't do that. You know, it's like, uh, mm -hmm. it's like fiduciary responsibility. If so, if there is a fiduciary, uh, person like you mentioned and they do that type of thing of some kind like they don't don't do something to your best ability like what does someone do you just like report them uh yeah i would report them either to the state regulator or to the sec depending on uh where they're registered and and you should know that um with whomever you're working with and uh i mean they're as uh, as fee only financial planners they are legally required to do what's in your best interest and so uh, that's, that's, uh, it's not a, when, when we're on the side of the table where it's, um, uh, commission based products like life insurance policies or, uh, mutual funds or that way, if you just go buy a mutual fund from an advisor, uh, they, they get paid a commission from however much you invest. Um, the, the requirements are, uh, um, there's a suitability standard. And so it, it just has to be suitable as opposed to a fee only, uh, approach where you have, where they have a, fidu a fiduciary standard. It has to be in the client's best interest. And so, um, there's, it's definitely a different level of care and advice for sure. Yeah. What is the, like, what's the repercussions? Like, I, I, you wouldn't do this, but like, if someone did breach the fiduciary responsibility, do they just like get a fine or something? Uh, it, dep it depends it depends entirely on how significant the breach was mm. um and so uh they they could be they could be fined they could be uh they could lose their license they could uh, my understanding you could end up in jail uh for doing that um if it's severe enough and so yeah to uh when people are i, I just i'm just like kind of uh following a line here i don't actually think this probably happens a lot but the uh, I'm thinking like Bernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff, where it's like when bad things happen, people just kind of left without. So if someone mm -hmm. were to give bad advice like this and they have a responsibility to do it, um, are people like made whole after that? Is there like a legal structure to like get what you lost back or like whatever happened back? Or is it just like you report them, they're punished, and you kind of like move on and like learn or something? Like what is what do, what do people do 
when they're scammed, I guess, or whatever the term would be uh, during these types of things? Uh, I I think I mean you you absolutely report them. I mean that's that's the that's that's because because what happens what I think happens is if someone uh, if if someone if there's an advisor that's scamming folks, he doesn't just do it once; they do it over and over and over. And if you don't report it, then and the next person doesn't report it, and the next person it it, it continues on. And so um, I do think there are um, there are there are processes in place to attempt to make the uh, the the client or the consumer whole, um, but it would base it'd be based entirely on what the breach was, how significant it was, what what the impacts of that were. Yeah, and then um, I, there's like two. Uh, I saw these on TikToks. I think. Well, one of them I didn't. The whole everyone was talking about whole life insurance. I was like, why is this? How is whole life insurance an investment vehicle? But uh, so. Uh, Whole life. What are your thoughts on whole life insurance? And I have like uh, a question on like trust, I guess. But what do you think? I didn't. I did not think insurance could be investment. But yeah. Uh, uh, my, in my opinion, life insurance should hold should serve one of three basic purposes. It helps cover burial costs. It replaces lost income uh, in the event of someone passed, and it's an efficient way to gift money to a beneficiary or an organization. So if I if I knew that upon my passing I want to give fifty thousand dollars to the local uh, humane society, uh, a life insurance policy is a really efficient way to do that. I start I cover premiums, and when I pass, they're getting fifty thousand dollars regardless of when I pass. Um, and so um, as long as the policy is in effect, of course, um, I'm a I'm a huge term insurance. Fan, uh, because if if we do the right things, um, we'll get to a point financially where we can cover burial costs, and we eventually get to a point where we're not we don't need to replace lost income, and um, and then there's the efficient way to pass money on that could be a whole life policy if it needs to be, uh, but uh, a lot of times whole life. Uh, or index universal life, and there's a whole uh, slew of um, variants of that uh, are advertised as it's an investment vehicle. Um, you can overfund the policy and the cash value inside the policy um, grows, and then you can take uh, you can uh, take a loan from the policy and it's not a taxable event when you do that. However, um, anytime we take any, not just in finance, but anytime we take anything that was designed for a specific purpose and we, and we modify it to do something else, it becomes less efficient. It's not as efficient as if we had just started from scratch and made something to do what we were, what we were trying to do. And so, uh, a whole life insurance policy as an investment is just not as efficient as if you were to do the investing outside of the life insurance policy. What is the, what do you like about term life insurance? Why are you a fan of them? I think other than the what you critiqued about the other ones, what is mm -hmm. that? What does it do that? Um, I think it's the one where you basically pay a premium for like a period of time that you set in advance, and then you get um, an amount when you die, as long as it's not like uh, I think like, like they don't cover suicide or something. But um, yeah, what do you like about uh, term life insurance? Uh, we go back to what the purpose of the money is for. I mean, what this financial tool, insurance, life insurance what's its purpose? Why do we have it in our lives? And uh, for most folks, uh, we need, if we're taking the approach of life insurance is to cover burial costs, it's replaced lost income, 
we don't need that for our whole lives. We only need it for a set period. And so a term life insurance policy, um, you do pay premiums uh, for a set period and the policy only lasts that set period. Um, and at the end, you don't, there's no residual anything. It's, it's very similar to your uh, car insurance. I mean, you pay a premium every month, every year for auto insurance. And if you never have a claim, well, you, you lost your premium payments, but you were paying for the insurance. And that's a term life insurance. I, I would view that the same way. The premiums, if we took um, equivalent whole life, I shouldn't say equivalent, equivalent death benefits of a whole life policy and a term life policy, the premiums on a term life policy would be significantly less than they will be on a whole life policy. And that difference allows us more margin to do other things um, than have it all tied up in a in a whole life policy. Uh, is there, if someone's making like, uh, I think the average income in America is thirty-eight to forty-two thousand dollars a year. If they were to do a term life insurance, it, what amount would be good? Because I know there's like a variable you can like select how much. Mm -hmm. Like, what would be like a good rule of thumb for that? Uh, it depends on the situation. Who, you know, am I responsible for somebody else? Is somebody else is uh, is somebody else dependent on my income? And if that's the case, well, I need to work out what happens when I pass away. What's going to happen to them? And and how much life insurance do I need to, to do what what I or what we think uh, they're going to need going forward? And for for people in very similar situations, um, might have different uh, the way the family. An example of this would be um, I'll take myself personally. Uh, um, if we had a mortgage on our house, if if I passed away, well, I mean, regardless of the mortgage, if I, if, if I passed away, my wife has said, I, I, there's no way I can leave the house because all our memories are there. That's where the kids grew up. That's all. There's so much tied to the house. And for me personally, if my wife passed away, I don't know that I could walk back in that house again. I, I would, I would definitely move uh, on to, on to somewhere else. And so that doesn't have anything to do with uh, finance. It's all emotional, but we need mm -hmm. to plan our finances around those two scenarios which are completely different and so yeah. when we look at life insurance needs it's well what are, we go back to what's the purpose of the money i mean why are we buying a life insurance uh, what do we need it to do and then that we can back into how much you need yeah and that, that, that is going to vary a lot from individual to individual yeah and then what do you uh think about trusts i literally uh, uh, sat at a bank the other day because I was rolling quarters, which I'm very pissed off that my bank no longer does like you hand them change, they cycle it down. Because that's yeah. that sounds to me like a financial service, and they do not <laughs> have that service. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, they were nice, but I sat there for like 30 minutes, you know, because I had a huge change jar. And there was like uh, everyone who saw someone, they were talking about trusts. So, like, uh, oh. how to how to how, how should people should, should should the average person have a trust? Or uh, when it comes to financial planning or whatever, like how do you utilize trusts for uh, our retirement planning and what have you? Uh, it, uh, it it just goes. I mean, it's a it's another extension of what are we trying to accomplish? Um, uh, a trust. There's there's uh, there's like 148 different types of trusts out there. Um, there uh, each one is structured a little bit differently, has different advantages and disadvantages, uh, and so it it goes back to what are we trying to accomplish, and then is is there a specific type of trust that, that helps us move further in that direction? And so um, it's the, some, there's uh, state rules 
that vary. There's rules for estate planning that vary from state to state that in some states a revocable trust is beneficial and other states it's not as beneficial. Um, it, it really depends on the state you're in and what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, um, if I'm, if I'm trying to care for a special needs granddaughter and I want to provide for that, well, there, there are special needs trusts that help, uh, can help financially, um, can help them financially without impacting their, uh, their, the help they're getting from the government. And so that, that might be a situation where a, uh, a special needs trust would be beneficial. Um, if, uh, you know, a lot of folks talk about trusts for asset protection and that we just, it just goes back to, um, I hate to say this, but you, you really need to have a conversation with a, an attorney on what it is you're trying to do and mm-hmm. whether the trust is the right tool in the tool shed, tool, tool in the tool shed to do that. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you, you guessed where I was going to ask you. It's like, are you the person to ask these questions to? It sounds like it's a lawyer who you would use in conjunction with like after meeting with a, a fee-based a financial planner to like really map out what to do after. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I advocate for, for my clients that we have those conversations here um, uh, and then go to the attorney. And, and so we kind of flush out a little bit of the um, what we're trying to accomplish and get that squared away before you go talk to the attorney. Um, just the attorney fees are generally a bit higher. So. Yeah. When it comes to, but there's a lot of really complex topics we're talking about today, and there's a lot of it depends because they're really complicated. How much time, uh, let's say if someone's at zero and they were to sit down with you, how long does it take to go from zero to like, we have a plan, it's all mapped out, and now it's just kind of executing on the plan and making sure it's good? Is it like you, you do it in a day or it's like a couple of days? Is it like an hour? Like how much time does it take to get people uh, financially literate enough and with a plan that meets their needs? Uh that accounts for all that we're talking about today. Some folks, um, I mean, I, I've had hour long conversations with folks that, that provided them with enough information to, to move them to the next step or to get them moving in the right, in, in the right direction to the next step. And then once they reach that step, they can either I can help them further or someone else can. Um, I mean, to, to, to map out a full blown financial plan. Um, I mean, usually that's a, that's a couple meeting process and we need to understand what you're trying to accomplish, um, discuss what the options are and understand what you're most likely to implement. And then, uh, actually sit down and say, here's the plan. Here's the, here's the action items and steps. Um, um, it, it really, I mean, I think for most people, just an hour long conversation with a, with a fee only financial planner would, would be hugely beneficial that to answer a lot of the, I don't know how long we've been talking, but to answer specific questions about my situation about, you know, here's my credit card debt. Do I tackle it this way or this way? And, and within an hour, you would have that answer what the difference is time-wise as opposed to approaches to tackling it and what the, what the difference in, in interest rates or interest costs would be. And then um, be able to map out a, a basic budget. And I mean, a lot of that stuff you could do in an hour um, and that, that would be hugely beneficial. Another one, another, just taking the step to move in that direction. Um, most people don't need a full-blown, I don't think, most people need a full-blown financial plan, mapping out what's going to happen over the next 40 years because life is going to happen over the next 40 years. And, and uh, you know, the first time a life event happens and it blows up the plan, well, it didn't matter what we had forecast to happen 40 years from now a year from now things changed and now the plan's completely obsolete and so 
for a lot of folks we just need them get them moving in the right direction yeah what um and also it sounds like uh well a lot of people have like limited vacation days or whatever to do stuff like this mm -hmm. uh you know uh it sounds like the next time you go like take a uh a sick day or whatever it's called to get a day off to go to see your doctor you know maybe when you're done seeing the doctor you see a financial planner like you know group it all into a day to be time yeah. efficient but yeah and, what? and, and i and, and, I'll, and, and let me, uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, a lot of the only financial planners, especially in the Garrett Planning Network, uh, XY Planning Network, th those folks, those folks will uh, have very flexible schedules. Well, they'll have one night a week where they're, they'll take uh, virtual meetings in the evening. And so um, it's it, it doesn't have to be a whole, it's not like a bank where it's only open from nine to five or nine to four. Um, uh, there are planners out there that will meet in the evenings around your schedule as well. So what would uh, what are some things that people should have prepared to talk to a financial planner to have a, a good um, hour with a financial planner? Is it like uh, you know bank statements? Like what what type of like resources uh, would the average person have that they should bring so they can have like a media conversation? Uh, most recent tax return because that's very revealing in and of itself, and then uh, bank statement uh, for the last month. And then any anything that you have questions about. Um, if you have a 401k at work and not sure what to do with it, well, then bring your 401k statement in. And and um, if you've got uh, money sitting in a savings account um, or in a CD somewhere, well, I would bring that statement. And um, that's one of the things I would ask: is how, how does this is this the right place for this? Uh, where does this fit into the puzzle of my financial life? And then uh, you mentioned uh, how you can't really plan for emergencies. And I know like that's one of the big things that got you into financial planning, that emergency happened, something very sudden that you didn't see coming. And it really shifted. I mean, put you on a different track in particular, but um, if uh, when it comes to sensitive things, I just kind of like set the groundwork and let you go go forward because I know it's a very sensitive story. Um, so what 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 happened uh, that led you to where you are now? Um, <clears throat> uh, I, we, uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. Uh, I got into software consulting and uh, we got a phone call one January evening uh, saying that my father had a, a very aggressive brain tumor and uh, um, and that changed the trajectory of my life entirely. And so uh, they we, we did treatments. Uh, we live in South Dakota. My, my folks lived in uh, Wyoming. They came over and did treatments. Uh, in the town I'm in it, here in Rapid City and uh, stayed at our house while they were doing it. We would go home, would go home. My daughter, Ellie, and I would go to my folks' place on the weekends and do things around the house. But uh, we just had a, there was a, my, my dad ended up passing away uh, in May, just uh, four months later, four full months later. And uh, it was walking through helping my mom financially after that, um, really prior to it and after it. Um, there was, there was a day, uh, we were over there on a Sunday and my dad looked at me and said, I want to make sure your mom's okay. And mom burst into tears and ran out of the room. She didn't want to talk about finances at all, but dad wanted to know if he had done his job, is, is your mom going to be okay? And, uh, after a couple of weeks of digging through things, we didn't have our hands on everything, but we had enough information that I was able to tell dad that mom's going to be just fine. And you could physically see the weight come off his shoulders. And uh, he 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 passed away within the next month. And um, uh, after working with mom and getting everything taken care of, put together, 
Um, I did a lot of soul searching as to what what was what I was called to do here on uh, here on Earth, and uh, um, and arrived at if I could help anybody else, help prevent anybody else from having to go through that. If um, if da if Dad would have had just a financial binder, I never would have had to have seen it prior to needing to see it. But just knowing that he had all his information in one place. Um, you know, life insurance policies, investment statements, uh, recent bank accounts, last year's tax return, all that kind of information just in one place. Um, that, or if they had worked with an advisor or a financial planner, you know, on that, he asked me that on Sunday, on Monday morning, I could have picked up the phone and called, um, you know, Imagination Dave and said, Dave, is, is mom going to be okay? And, and he would have said, yeah, she's going to be just fine. Don't worry about that. Focus on what's important right now. And dad wouldn't have had to go through those two weeks of, is your mom going to be okay? He, he would have experienced that much sooner when he should have been worried about, he should have been focusing on other things. And so that really, um, uh, about a year and a half later, I, I stopped consulting and I transitioned to be a, a financial advisor and I, uh, and my mission and purpose uh, for doing that is to, to help other people prepare for those, those life events that we don't see coming. And, I, and, and I've, and it's happened not countless, but so many times with clients where, uh, we just had, um, there's one this summer where, um, you know, we're, we're planning retirement. Um, they're retired and then one of them passes away unexpectedly. And now we're, the whole thing's up in the air and, um, along with the financial issues, we're dealing with all the emotional issues with that. And so that, that was really my impetus for getting into financial planning. Um, uh, I started out as a commissioned uh, financial advisor because that's the only thing I knew. I didn't know there was another path. And uh, I eventually was introduced to uh, the fee only um, side of the business. And uh, I, I, I sleep so much better at night now knowing that um, I'm not influenced. I'm not making recommendations based on, you know, uh, mutual fund A pays me 5.75% and mutual fund B pays me four and a half. Well, guess what? All my clients are in mutual fund A. And I, and that I just, I have a really hard time with that. Um, whether I, I wanted it to or not, it still influenced the recommendations. So, um, I don't want to, uh, monologue too far, but, uh, that's, um, that, that that's really the event that that got me doing uh, got me into financial planning. Is there anything um, when it comes to those types of events? Like we talked about uh, credit card debt, budgeting, uh, knowing uh, where you want to go, having a financial plan. Um, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think like, man, I wish I would have had in place, uh, or that people that you've had you helped with uh, help with going through situations like that that you wish you had in place um, that we haven't discussed. No, I, I mean, I think there, there's two things that come mind. We talked about margin and I think margin both financially and with time. It, it's such a, uh, we live, it seems like everybody is busy. Like that's a badge of honor that I'm busy and I, and I don't have time to do things, but I think, um, we need, it's important to get to the point where if, if something's not a hell yes, then it's a no, I can't do that. And if it's, uh, we need to have margin in our lives, uh, time wise as well, because life is going to happen. Um, 
and, and uh, having that margin financially helps buffer us. Um, the the idea of a financial notebook of just having, and it doesn't have to be a notebook, it can be a binder, it could be a, a, a manila envelope, just something that somebody else knows where all your financial information is. They don't have to know what's in it, just that they know that if something happens, hey, on, on the shelf, Behind me, there's uh, there's a folder that says whatever you want to call it. Um, if something happens to me, that's that's where you go, and that's got everything in it. Then it it makes when life does happen, and that's an emotional event as well as a financial event. Uh, it simplifies the financial aspect of it. Uh, if someone passes unexpectedly, you got enough emotional stress to work through, let alone add on top of that financial stress of, is there anything, it, what, how is it structured? What does it work? What do we need to cover? How do they just, just having all of that in one place and, and having someone knowing and someone knows where to go get it. Yeah. Is it good to keep it in like a security deposit box? I know those are pretty, that's where a lot of people put stuff. I've never had one, but I just know like sometimes people recommend them. <clears throat> Yeah, I think a security deposit box is fine as, as long as, or as good, as long as that other person has access to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you both need to be on the security deposit box. Well, uh, the, no, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say a, a, a fire safe at the house. Um, you know, you can buy a little, uh, I don't know how big they are, 18 by 18 by 18 fire safe and um, have it at the bottom of your closet with your, your information in it. Um, and, and somebody else knows where the key is and um, that can serve the same purpose. The, since you have a background in software, I think you'd appreciate this concept. The idea of uh, you have like one copy of something, you have like three three versions of a thing, uh, like one, one locally, another one locally, and then one like on a third location that's safe so like nothing happens. Do you mm -hmm. recommend, let's say just taking the optimal of uh, a binder, do you recommend then getting that duplicated and then doing that same thing where you have a backup of it um and then you have one off-site is it like that level of, of security would be great or is that unnecessary no i don't i think that's great it's just uh, if we can get people to do the first step we're, yes we're covering so much ground but yeah absolutely if you can have a, a second copy somewhere a digital copy i mean that's just i don't want to i don't want to prevent somebody from doing it because they're like well now i gotta make three copies and i gotta scan everything and i gotta come up with an electronic company uh, but yes, to your point, absolutely. If we can have some um, diversification as to where things are at, if something happens to one, it's in other areas, that's absolutely beneficial. Great. And then um, financial literacy, we've talked about some books uh, throughout, but and some resources, but wait, actually, I remembered, uh, I circled this. Career as a financial planner. Do um, So it's like a two-part thing. Is there like a glut of good financial planners? Like, do we need more people going into it? And it's, uh, if so, what's it like being a financial planner? Because, um, like, you know, sometimes people listen in and they're like, they're looking for a career that they can love with a passion. And it sounds like you have such a, a huge opportunity to help people every day. So, like, in terms of like value and spending your time wisely, it sounds like a great career. Um, but it's like, um, like teachers, for instance, like having great teachers, we definitely need tons more of those. Um, do we need, is financial planners like lawyers where we have a lot of them? Or do we need more of them? And is that an opportunity for people listening in uh, as a career? There, there are, uh, I would say there's too many financial advisors. I would say there's not enough fee-only financial planners, uh, mm -hmm. making that, that distinction. Uh, there's, 
there's not a shortage of people that are willing to give you advice for if you'll buy the product they're trying to sell. There, there are, there, um, there's a lot of those in the in the world. Um, I would say there's, uh, there's not enough the only financial planners that are, um, that their advice is not dependent on the product or the recommendation that they're making. And uh, I, I think it's a wonderful, I think it's a wonderful career for me. It's a um, you know, I, uh, to be truthful, I, I look at our children and say, is this, you know, what I want one of them to follow into what I'm doing? And, um, if, if it's, if that's a passion of theirs, I, I want them to follow what's, what's important to them, what's, what they feel called to do here on earth. And if that's financial planning, I would definitely not discourage it. Um, I would, I would strongly encourage it. Um, it's a, uh, very impactful. Um, we have count, we have conversations on the couch. There's many times where um couples it's painfully obvious that they've never said something to each other until we're sitting in the room and i'm asking them questions and and uh we get to a point where they're saying something that they hadn't told their spouse before and so it's a hugely rewarding um emotionally rewarding uh career as well what does it take for anyone listening to because it sounds like you definitely want to skip the commission type stuff and go to fee only What's it take to be a fee-only financial planner? Like, is a certificates, education, uh, training? Like, what is it? Like, roughly, what does it take? And then, if there's like a, you can apply a time amount to like go from like, hey, this sounds awesome, to like now actually doing fee-based uh thing. So, like, uh, what would be your answer to that? Uh, I mean, the legal requirement is simply that uh, you you pass the series sixty-five exam, um, and you can become a, a fee-only financial planner. Um, I I would argue that that passing that exam doesn't put you in a position where you're um, you're qualified to give advice um, to folks. And so I, I, I would encourage folks to either pursue um, the financial planning um, uh, bachelor's degree. There's master's now that you can get in financial planning um, throughout the country, um, at the very least to pursue the certified financial planning uh, or certified financial planner certification. Um, that's a, there's a six courses you walk through and then there's a capstone course where you build a financial plan and it's critiqued and graded, um, by financial planners. And then you have to pass a, a comprehensive exam, um, before you can become a certified financial planner. Um, and, and I think if I had to start it all the way over, I would look for a fee only financial planner to, to work in their office to start with. And, mm-hmm. um, even if it was just, uh, you know, it was an entry level position where I'm, um, even at the front desk, uh, at the front desk, you know, make scheduling call or scheduling appointments, um, uh, doing administrative work. There are so many, uh, different, there's so many different parts of, of being a financial planner, um, that you, it really is beneficial to have worked in all those areas before, before giving real advice to clients so yeah and then um back to financial literacy for our last question um what what we, we talked about some books we talked about some resources what are um some further ones that you recommend people check out it doesn't have to be uh, just financial uh, if you have like some fun ones that you just recommend people throw in 
like a, a fantasy series you like or whatever like i'm always looking for new things to read as you can see like by my uh, book section that's very eclectic <laughs> uh there's like blood meridian over there next to like uh, the hobbit or something but uh yeah. what are some financial books you recommend or resources and then uh what are some you know general books you recommend that you think would be fun whether you like dave ramsey or don't like dave ramsey i think if you pick up one of his baby steps books and 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 uh and 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 work and read through it and decide which one of those and decide how you want to apply some of those. I don't agree with everything Dave Ramsey uh, says, but that's a very good template to start, to get started on your journey. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Um, if you've got children, um, there's a book called The Opposite of Spoiled uh, with uh, Ron Liber is his name. Um, oh, can you, can you show the books? Because yeah, I know they're in front of you. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you can read that. Opposite yes, of, the Opposite uh, of Spoiled. Spoiled. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a, it's an excellent book on how to introduce, uh, financial concepts or the concept of money to your children. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's one that, uh, we use with our family. Um, he uses the, the give, save and spend jars and we work through any, and the book walks through how to implement that. And, and, uh, it's, it's, it's hugely beneficial. Um, as far as, um, overall life. Uh, when we talk about finance and what's important, uh, this, this book with, it's called, uh, I'm sorry, Enough from John Bogle. John Bogle is mm -hmm. one of the founders of Vanguard. Um, and, uh, this book is, is really good on, um, what's really important in life. It's not, it's not always about more, more, more. Um, uh, that book is good with that. And then, uh, personally, on a, on a day to day level, this book, uh, Atomic Habits, uh, with James Clear, um, hmm. the concept of habit stacking and his approach to that has been life changing to me. Um, it's been hugely beneficial. And I could, I got a, I could grab more books, but I, I think those are four, four, four that would be good to start with. Uh, thank you for saying hell yes to being on the show today and for sharing <laughs> this extremely important knowledge. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thank you, Lowell. I've been enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, to, to increase financial liter literacy and I'm um, just uh, thankful for this time and uh, appreciate you being here this morning. So thank you.